teach us, Lord Jesus, through the power of your Holy Spirit, to the glory of the Father. Amen. We are familiar with Jesus' gospel invitation. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. One translation reads, are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me, work with me, watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy on you or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. If we were looking for a source to map out the easy yoke, what it meant to be under Jesus' easy yoke, I think it would be the Sermon on the Mount. We're halfway between Christmas and Easter, and the lectionary readings guide the Christian into what the Christian life is meant to be and what that life is all about. And so it's natural to go to the Sermon on the Mount. If we want to know how to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, strength, and soul, this is the place to go. When Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. The Sermon on the Mount is the place to go. When Jesus speaks of, I have come that you might have life and you might have it abundantly, I think he maps it out in the Sermon on the Mount. A friend of mine, who I became pretty close to, we have actually taught a course together in Toronto, and I taught his daughter, who went to Russia and was, was murdered. She became a martyr for the gospel. Uh, so our relationship ran deep. But Ray would be the first to say that he spent 20 years in the church as a business person, clueless as to what the Christian life meant. He came week after week, but he wrote the Bible off as a list of idealistic platitudes, absolutely of no import for his work life. Well, Ray suffered a serious car accident, and in that process of soul-searching, he asked himself, well, what would it be like if I followed Jesus every day, not just for an hour or two on Sunday? And that led to a long search. And he began reading the Bible, not through eyes that dismissed it, but eyes that embraced it because of the grace of Christ. It changed the way he was an executive at Shell Oil. He used to write the most lucrative contracts in the company selling technology to people who way more te technology than they needed because he could convince them. And he changed. He started writing contracts that met 
the needs of his customers. The people that he would pay no attention to at Shell Oil because they were beneath him, he now began to attend to. Those injustices in the workplace that he himself had kind of perpetuated, he began to see his part in those. Ray was transformed by the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He became just as much a pastor at Shell Oil as I would be a pastor in the church. When we hear Jesus say, you've heard it said, but I say to you, you've heard it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist the evil person. If anyone slaps you, if anyone sues you, if anyone forces you to go the second mile, if anyone schemes against you to get your money, do something surprising. Don't get even. Do something creative. Do what I would do in that situation, Jesus says. Now, at that point in the Sermon on the Mount, you kind of are at the hard stuff. But it's, began, it's begun with the Beatitudes, the blessings. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. These uh, eight blessings do not describe the way to merit grace. They describe the state of grace. The person who has received the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ knows her utter dependence upon the mercy of God. The person who understands that their salvation is through his mercy, not through their effort, he knows that he has sinned to repent of, that there is a need for constant forgiveness, that there is a sense indeed in which they are miserable apart from the grace of Christ. These blessings are a powerful state of grace, not a means of grace. They describe who is saved, not how to be saved. And then Jesus follows up those beatitudes with two statements of identity. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Not, it'd be nice if you were, or you ought to be, but you are. This is not a try-harder sermon. This is a live-into-the-grace sermon. Jesus is describing to his followers who they are. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not yourself. It's the gift of God. And we are created as God's workmanship, God's poetry, God's artwork, God's craftsmanship to do those good works. The law kind of keeps prisoners in line. But the law of liberty in Christ 
that grace-based, beatitude-based, salt and light kind of existence that Christ prescribes for us, that's living in relationship to a Heavenly Father whom we love now and have been empowered to love. Jesus says, I haven't come in any way to abolish the law, only to fulfill it. Everything that the law was about, everything the law was about, Every jotted tittle of the law has been fulfilled in my work. So it's not like a contract. It's a covenant. It's a covenant like a marriage covenant that's grandly inclusive of all you are and all you will be. That covenantal relationship is an inspiring and empowering relationship to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. So we come to this command. You folks have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, folks, do not try to get even with the evil one. Now, the evil one here is small case. Remember what James said. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Well, certainly behind the, any evil one is the evil one. But the way to resist the evil one is by overcoming evil with good, not overcoming evil with evil, not fighting fire with fire, not using a satanic tactic to get to Satan. It is using a Christ strategy. <laughs> Our immediate reaction, and it's still my immediate reaction. A Christian since five and 65, a lot of years in the faith. But my natural reaction is anger when wronged. And Jesus illustrates this with four different cases. Boy, I find them hard. The slap, the scam, the second mile, the scheme. And what Jesus is saying here, Christians will allow their honor to be slighted without seeking retribution. Christians can be disadvantaged without fighting back. Christians can be exploited without taking revenge. Christians can give up their money without becoming Scrooges. Now, we all come out of entrenched cultural patterns of getting even. J.D. Vance has written a book entitled Hillbilly Elegy. I'm sure some of you have read it. And there's not too many hillbillies at the Advent. So it's a safe illustration for me to use. The family tells the story of uh, an uncle who was in a pharmacy playing with a toy and playing kind of rough with the toy. And the store clerk came over and said, put the toy down, kept playing with it. He said, leave the store. So he left the store. The grandparents were in another store and they came by and he was outside and the grandparents marched into the store, confronting the store clerk and taking this toy and asking, is this the toy that my son was playing with and the store clerk said, yes. And so the grandfather took the toy and smashed it against the floor. 
And it didn't stop there. They started taking stuff off the racks, throwing it around the store. They ended up bullying the store clerk into an apology, and they left, and they continued with their Christmas shopping. We all live with patterns of entrenched retribution, a get-even strategy. And Jesus is saying here, stop. No, you're different. You don't do what your natural human sinful condition used to do now. Because of me, you're different. You're surprisingly radical. But I hasten to add this, which I think is just as biblical. Jesus did not advocate for Christians to stand by passively as others get hurt. We defend the person who's bullied harassed, abused, exploited, slandered, deprived. In another life, I was a youth pastor. And one of the guys in the group considered me a fairly soft target authority figure. And it's just week after week, it was a resentment story. Um, he did not like me, and I knew he didn't like me. And one night, we're closing with prayer, and different ones in the group are praying, and he suddenly just starts talking and mocking the prayers that are being given. And I stop and probably shouted kind of loudly, quiet. And David got up and he walked out of the room. And we were concluding. Well, a few minutes later, after we disband, I, I got up and I walk out to my car. And the headlights on my car were painted orange. And the antenna on my car, back in the days when you had antennas, was broken off. And I, well, knowing exactly who just did that, I got in my car and I drove over to Dave's home. And uh, Dave's parents greeted me at the door. Dave had gone to his bedroom and they called David to come out and he came out in a rage, an absolute rage, cursing his parents, cursing me. He had ripped his shirt off. He was walking around the living room bare-chested. And he went like that for 10 minutes till he finally sort of crumbled into a sob and started crying. Well, I realized that, you know, I wasn't the issue here. There was something a lot bigger. And I just simply said, Dave, what's the story? And he had for weeks been exploited by a gang to pay protection money or he would be beaten up on his paper route. And I thought this must be breaking news for the parents, that we had finally gotten to the bottom of it. And I said, what have you done? Or what should we do? And they said, well, we've known about this all along. And I said, well, what have you done? We've told Dave to pray about it. And I just realized in that moment what a different family I had grown up in. My parents would have been all over that. They would have had the school, the police, they would have had everybody protecting their son. They certainly would have my back and would have gone to bat for me. Jesus is not advocating passivity or the acquiescence to injustice. He's, he's modeling a radical undefensiveness on the interpersonal scale of life. 
Now, I also happen to believe that, you know, if you do practice this, this is going to have an impact on how you do policing. It's going to do an impact on how you fight wars. But we need police. It's not a global pacifism that's being talked about here. It's what's being talked about here is a strategy for relating to the neighbor and to the enemy in a way that speaks volumes about the gospel of grace and forgiveness. John Perkins is one of my biblical heroes, but you won't find him in the Bible. But you find the Bible in John. And I read his book early in my life entitled A Quiet Revolution. And John Perkins describes the night he was in a Brandon City jail, almost beaten to death. And he says, on that night, Christ pushed me past hate. And he said the depravity and the evil that was coming at him that night in figures that seemed distorted so that they weren't even human, he realized in that moment that he was just as evil as the people that were beating him up. And he said being right was not enough. That God was telling him in that moment being right was right, but you need forgiveness and you need mercy and you need grace if anything's going to good going to come out of all this. Christians are above revenge. They're on a mission. Jesus calls us to visible participation in his cross-bearing life, both at the advent and at shell oil. What do you think Jesus meant when he told us to take up our cross daily and follow him? This asks for a new man, a new woman. This asks for a new community, an almost entirely different breed of human being. We have been recipients of God's love. So we bear with one another, forgiving as the Lord forgave us. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. The real kicker in this sermon is the last line. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect? Huh? And that ties in with the Leviticus 19, be holy because I am holy, says the Lord God. What does that mean, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect? It certainly doesn't mean a Western style perfectionism, an impeccability. A self-critical attitude that aspires for some form of idealistic perfectionism. What it means, and I think Josephus is right in understanding that it means the progression from childishness, childhoodness to adulthood, to maturity. That's why Paul said in Colossians, we proclaim him admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present them mature in Christ. We're perfect in Christ. Perfect meaning maturity. Growing up through the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Savior Jesus Christ. 
You know, I like to be represented by my three 30-something children and the in-laws. And I feel I'm well represented by them. Well, I want to represent my Heavenly Father. I want to be in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit. I want the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ reflected. It isn't always thankful that we have weekly confession and daily confession. There's a natural human condition in me that brings out the worst at times, for sure. But let's be clear. This isn't a try-harder sermon, but this is a live-into-the-grace-of-our-Lord-and-Savior-Jesus-Christ sermon. And there's plenty of living to do in the power of the gospel. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.